0: Hello, and welcome to the Conlangery Podcast, the podcast all about constructed languages. I'm your host, George Corley, and here from Maryland, the lovely Bianca Mangum. Hello. And way down south in Santiago de Chile, we have Tomás Boncompt.
1: Hola, compadre. But don't, don't worry, I'm going to speak English this time. Anyway, <laughs> love the last name, uh, Mangum. Mangum,
0: yeah. I think we all actually speak Spanish here, but, uh... No, you don't.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> no?
2: I
1: don't? I don't know. I've seen George's uh, George Spanish, and it's, a. Uh,
0: uh,
1: let's leave it at that. <laughs>
0: my Spanish is a little rusty. Right. Yes.
1: It's good. It's no better than my French, anyway. <laughs> I'm always too shy to speak my Spanish. Really? Do try it, please. I'm
2: not in the mood. Maybe when I finish my drink.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Heard that one a lot.
0: That's not
1: the first time I've heard that phrase, lady.
0: First, if I had any kind of drops or bumpers, I would play something here because we're starting the first segment here. Conlangery. is where we talk about a topic that has something to do with conlanging, uh, sort of a, a general topic. Uh, today we're going to say talk about why do people conlang. There's many reasons people state for creating their language. Some people want it like a secret language to write their journal in. Some people have spiritual reasons for it. Some peoples want to apply it to a fictional work, like a novel. So what drives people to conlang, conlanging, and what are the characteristics that make people more or less interested in this very impractical hobby? What do you guys <laughs> think about
1: that? Well, it is. it is. It completely is. I mean, constructing a language takes thousands of man-hours, and you end up with something which you probably don't speak in the first place. <laughs>
2: That's so, so It is
1: incredibly nerdy and incredibly um, impractical, if you said it. But I think most people do it for the fun of it, you know? It's like uh, reading a novel that doesn't end, you know? It is intrinsically... Uh, con- uh, I can't find the word, but... What I mean is that it doesn't end, you know? There's no end point. There's no oh, way. I finished this.
2: Yeah, the reward you get isn't from finishing it, it's by doing it. I mean, I don't do it yeah. for any... Re- well, I do it for some reason, obviously, but it's not to get to an end point to say, yes, I finished the language, here it
0: is. Yeah, I think, I think both of you are right on that. Most people that I see on the forums talking about their conlangs and stuff, they really just conlang to conlang, and that's where... I used to be. More recently, I just haven't been conlanging as much, and it's more been as I've been writing my novel. When I needed something in a conlang, I constructed it. But that's still sort of me doing it for the sake of doing it, because writing the novel, you know, I'm not super likely to get a smash hit and get a million bucks out of the novel anyway. (laughs) And even then... If I did happen to get a hit after publishing this novel, which will be years in the future, maybe 1% of the people who read it would really appreciate the work that went into language.
2: Yeah. I kind of also, like, when I started my first one, my first language, it was came from an idea of a story I had, and I don't really write them down because I'm lazy, but... I did work on the language for a while now, and from the story, I also kind of got like the con world, which also goes hand in hand with a lot of people, you know, they have this con world, they have to have languages for each other people. And I think when you have like some other project that it goes into, you tend to stick with it more rather than people who make like 10 different ones a week and then find something new.
1: There's an interesting dynamic here in that you're writing a, a novel right and you're using the conlang as sort of a, a contextualizing uh, asset for it but i think conlanging and wording in general kind of eats out at other hobbies you know i mean a lot of people are make are like i'm conlanging because i'm going to make uh, i, I, I want to be Tolkien you know i want to be mm-hmm. this uh, a novelist with a hugely detailed world And really, the people tend to get uh, stuck in the world and stuck in the language and stuck in the history and not write in any narrative at all.
2: Yeah, that's really true, because it's a lot. It's Like you said, it takes thousands of hours.
0: Yeah, Um, actually what you said, Tomás, is exactly something that happened to me. Because my first conlang, Yelta, was part of this world that I created. It was a a sci-fi world with dimensional travel and all sorts of... And I wanted to write stories in it. I actually did do a fictional blog in it for a while. The fact is, I got so involved in writing the whole world the way it was, (laughs) that my world just became this perfect little box. And I was afraid writing a story would mess it up, <laughs> which, which oh,
1: that is realistically the a sci-
0: big epic sci-fi story is supposed to mess the world up. So, Sure. Or <laughs>
1: react to a world messing uh, event. Yeah. The thing is, I think calling in, in a way is easier than uh, writing for instance, because every little uh, bit counts. You know, you, you I don't know, I, you define the uh, intransitive uh, system of the, uh, one class of verbs, for instance, and, and that 's it. I, I did something today, and I added to my <laughs> to my work and it 's okay, but i don 't think you get uh, writer 's block on calling. as opposed to what the f- does my character do now
2: <laughs> i don 't agree on that like i 've come to points where i 'm like, I need to do something for this to work, but i don 't like anything I think up, so i 'm just like, fine, I have to do something else. And then maybe a week later, something will come to me that I like. It's not always like a direct thing. Like, I need this, so I come
1: up with something so it works. Sometimes it doesn't. That doesn't happen to me because I'm too lazy. (laughs) 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 Okay, now I'm going to make a paradigm for a class of nouns. And I can't be bothered. Move on. (laughs) So, yeah.
0: I've gotten a few things where I've just, like, not been able to do anything with my conlangs for a while like i started writing a grammar for yeltach and then i got i got pretty far through at least grammatical stuff but i haven't worked on that forever i've never really codified a grammar for Ayuruyo, besides just this bunch of charts of declensions and verb forms and stuff
1: Right, charts are the stuff of early conlangs. I know that for a fact. I have notebooks and notebooks of charts. (laughs) Really.
2: I think like half of, well not half of my grammar now, but like when I first started making my grammar for Nyauk, it was all like table, 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 table and then it would be like one sentence like, these are pronouns. And just (laughs) like nothing useful.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like Going back to the subject, sorry. Uh, yes. What does callanging do for you guys?
2: It kills time. Um, I, I only started recently, like a year and a half ago now, and that was you when I graduated from school. I always had ideas when I was in school, but I just didn't have the time. So now I have the time. Might as well waste it doing something.
1: Hey, you are a quick callanger, lady. I've I seen your stuff, and for, a, for one year of callanging, that's more than I have.
2: Thank you. <laughs> I have a like, lot of time.
0: For me, like at the start, I was just doing it because I had that interest in languages and it was an, a way to play with different things about language. And nowadays it's not as big for me, but I still am interested in conlanging and I'm interested in other people's conlanging.
1: Conlanging is, is a weird art, uh, if you consider it an art. It's It's weird like that because there are more creators of content than uh, conlanging (laughs) fans, you know?
2: Yeah, it's art basically for yourself. There's not really an audience other than a couple of people. I mean, even I'm guilty of this. Like, I make my conlang, but I hardly ever read anyone else's.
1: (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) Oh
0: Yeah, that's that's true. I I think really in any art, there's a bunch of people that don't get recognized, but in conlanging it's probably magnified just by the fact that it it's so difficult to try to say promote a uh, conlang if people get enthusiastic about someone else's conlang it's e- usually one of the big ones like klingon or yeah. esperanto and it, yes it, everyone
2: loves quenya well,
1: quenya i meant by the way
0: <laughs> and they usually latch onto one of them people don't yeah. appreciate a wide variety of conlangs cuz it's so hard to learn enough about a conlang to appreciate it and it's not like a natural language where you could actually learn it and speak it with a lot of other people only a very few conlangs can do that i think you know esperanto being the the big one even klingon doesn't have very many fluent speakers
2: no, and I wouldn't want to to speak hard. to anyone who spoke Esperanto either.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but the thing, the thing is, the, the big ones, as you said, it uh, Klingon or Quenya or Sindarin or uh, Esperanto, are not conlangs in the way that uh, most conlangs are, in the, in, in the sense that they are actually natural languages. They, they became real languages, just natural languages. I mean, they are constructed, but they have a living community which speaks it.
0: I think that could be said of Esperanto. I don't know about others. Because Esperanto does have native speakers. Really? Yeah, there's actually a word in Esperanto for it. I don't remember.
1: <laughs> that's some weird parenting there, right there.
0: <laughs> oh, there's people who have tried to teach Klingon as a native language. I don't know how many successes there have been on that, though.
1: Yeah, no, that's evil. that may be true
0: it might make it easy to learn other ones because Klingon is just so freaking hard
1: yeah, if if you learn Klingon you're done, I mean you can learn Mandarin if you want to (laughs) except for the tones, the tones will kill you yep I cannot hear tone to save my life (sighs) I I can hear like one or two but the difference between high and uh, rising and what the
2: fuck? See, I can hear, like, high and rising, like the ones with contours, but not, like, high and mid. I'd be like, whatever.
0: Actually, speaking of Mandarin, that actually brings us to the next segment, which is our feature of the week, which is measure words, more formally known as numeral classifiers. These are words or morphemes that are used with a numeral to indicate a count of nouns and you usually will have a semantic relationship to the noun that they're used to count. They're most common in East Asian languages such as Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Burmese and they also exist in English so if you know expressions like a head of cattle, head is like the measure word except they're more grammaticalized in these languages I know with uh, Chinese specifically, I've had to learn probably a hundred or more measure words that go with various things, and they all—they all have very loose semantic relationships. Like tiao is something long and thin, like a dragon, a river, a fish, but it's still a little bit arbitrary. Tomas, do you know anything anything about any languages with measure words in them?
1: Well, I think every language has, uh, to some measure, pun intended, the uh, measure words. I mean, we have, in English, we have a bunch, uh, ton, a lot, uh, a few, or whatever. But uh, they are not, probably not as uh, lexicalized or as grammaticalized as uh, in Mandarin. I mean, I can imagine having a different bunch for long things and different bunches for short things. But that is, that is one of the interesting things about calling. you know, you... Uh, realized I mean, for me, it was uh, a, a really big part of what is interesting about languages, or what was interesting about languages, when I started uh, doing this conlanging thing, realizing really how different uh, different languages work. It yeah, really no. blew my mind.
2: That's really one of the nice parts about, you know, linguistics and conlanging as a hobby, is that I mean, no one's going to look at your work, but you gain a lot of insight into the the different ways you can see things because I would never think to classify things by, like, maybe shape or, you know, movement in certain ways that other languages do.
0: Yeah. I think if you wanted to include these things into a language, it would be very interesting. Basically, in English, they're only used for non-count nouns, for mass nouns. Yeah. like, Like cattle, you can't, pluralized cattle. It's just a collective thing. Yeah. Um
2: I remember vaguely, and I could be making it up, but there was a language like where they classify I think it must have been an African language where you get all of those different like noun groups, whatever they're called, and they classify them like by the shape. So you'd have like group six would be long things, group seven would be round things or something.
0: I think what, what you talking it's about funny. is more noun classes or genders?
2: Well, no, it is, and I think it's interesting that the same idea of classifying things by their shape is represented in another part of the language, whereas other places, they see the same phenomenon, but they grammaticalize it somewhere else.
0: Yeah, that is an interesting thing, and learning about different languages, I think, can help us, like, learning these about these features can help us with the conlanging and the conlanging can learn us help us learn about how language works and how partly you can tell tell us how it really is very arbitrary you can attach a semantic meaning to a lot of different places
1: mm-hmm. like Spanish which uh, has uh, you know female moon and uh, male sun and stuff like which is completely arbitrary, right? And yeah. One thing that uh, appeared in my mind was when you, Bianca, were, were was saying that, uh, you know, how noun classes are reflected in measure, or words, or whatever, I think that is something which conglomerates tend to lack, you know, uh, and you incorporate a cool feature, you're like, oh, cool, I don't know, Koisan does something interesting, I'm going to incorporate that into language. But people tend to not think as much about how the how this, all these uh, different phenomena and different uh, linguistic dynamics occur in concert, you know, how, how one thing interacts with another and uh, gives you a coherent system.
0: Yeah, and they also, I think sometimes in conlangs, people forget the arbitrariness and the the irregularities a little bit, because, you know, with, with measure words, I know that, you know, in Chinese, you, I said you have the thing for long thin things and there's certain animals that take that there's other animals that take another thing that i don't even know what it's supposed to mean (laughs) sure and so to create a realistic language i think that that sort of thing will illustrate that a real language will have things that don't make a whole lot of sense
2: that happens like every once in a while you have like an idea okay i'm gonna group them by shape or whatever And then you get to the point where you get something that doesn't quite fit into any of the boxes and at some point you just have to decide and choose which one it's going to go into because it's never going to fit perfectly in any. And that happens in real life, of course, so people just choose one and then it sticks.
0: Yeah, or because of historical weirdness, something sticks because something meant something different earlier or whatever.
2: Yeah, you get that history in uh, natural languages that you just don't get in conlangs unless you do diachronics and you have, like, millions of hours to spend making a nice first language and then going and going and going.
0: Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the really good languages is they pay attention to history and actually extrapolate some of that weird stuff out.
1: Yeah. No, I think even with diachronics, you know, even with people who make this uh, very long, long, long uh, linguistic histories for their langs, there tends to be a uh, preference for regularity. Well,
2: it's easier to remember.
1: It's <laughs> sure, it's easier, but it also, I, I think it appeals to a sense of my language is logical, which is particularly, yeah. uh, you know, strong in... Uh, Augs Langer and people who want to be the next uh, Esperanto or something, but I don't know. I think most uh, Kohlangers feel that too much irregularity is messy or something.
2: I kind of agree with that. I think I fell prey to that with my first language, but I'm trying to make my next one evil and complicated.
0: <laughs> I tried to... Do a little bit of shaking up, but there's always very superficial the irregularity I introduce. Like I say with Ayuruyo, I have massive charts, and they're all very, very regular. I do have irregular forms, but they're not—they're not very extensive. Like
1: irregularity for for irregularity's sake.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think we can move on to our featured conlang, unless somebody has more stuff to say here.
2: Uh, I think we're good.
0: Okay. This is something that Bianca uh, alerted me to. It's Feyren. I'm not sure how to pronounce the name. It's, uh, it's the language of a fictional race of shapeshifters from the fictional world of Domantir created by David Edwards. And it has some interesting features that I picked up on. I saw he has this what he calls his stance system which appears to be basically a politeness system but it has some differences like basically by the way you speak in this language it looks like I took a cursory look at the grammar and it seems like it's marked on nouns and it marks whether you're a leader or a follower and different social situations Dictate when you use whichever one And there's some other Forms Bianca you have
1: Japanese does something Very similar to that right Like encoding in morphology The relative social status between people
0: Yeah Japanese and Korean Both do that I, I would guess that it was inspired By Japanese somewhat
2: Well I was asking him about it And I think it's more inspired by The um Whatchamacallit, like the wolf thing, like when they shapeshift, I believe they're wolves. And I don't want to be wrong about this, but whatever. It's very much like you get with animals where they take the different body uh, language type thing that's reflected in the language. So like, you know, you have the alpha wolf or whatever, and the rest of them, you know, take the stance to acknowledge that he's in the position of authority.
0: That is, well, People do that, that is, as well. Well, that's true, but it's
2: not as, I don't know how to say, obvious, I think, to most people.
0: Yeah, that, and the shape-shifting thing interests me because he mentions that there are things he built into the language based on their physiology. He says there's a bigger focus on describing smells, Mm -hmm. and he also said that fair are dichromatic, that is... Whereas humans have three basic colors in their eyes, the these creatures only have two basic colors. The only thing is, when I was looking closer into his stuff, he said it was like red and yellow are the same word and they can't differentiate between red and red and yellow. And I'm like, that's not that weird because... I think there are a lot of human languages that don't differentiate between red and yellow although humans do can't actually see the difference
2: well I mean it's where you take the idea the result might be the same but the inspiration is different
0: that does make sense but I do like um, when people make quote unquote alien languages and they talk about something some creature that has different physiology and they build that into the language I did that with Yelta. Tomas, what do you think about that kind of thing?
1: I actually disagree with you. I I tend to find that uh, when people do try to encode uh, quote-unquote alien characteristics in language, they tend to come up with... uh, It's it's as alien to me as the rubber forehead aliens in Star Trek, for instance. You know, like, oh, how weird, uh, not differentiating between red and yellow. Well come on, there's a bunch of languages that do that. I'm looking at walls right now, the World Atlas of Language Structures Online, which is a great research for, uh, for these kind of things. And uh, a lot of languages don't actually have that uh, uh, distinction. You know, green versus blue as the primary language, uh, green and blue are not different in, I don't know, 68 out of the 120 languages of the sample. So it's that's not like... really alien. Yeah. yeah, that's like, and, and I, I get that feeling, you know, like oh I don't know, uh, my lang- my guys have a fourth color. Well, okay, but I think that for for a language to be truly alien, and this is a bit history of me perhaps, it it's, it would it would it would have to be something very di- difficult to imagine. Yeah,
2: it's kind of like. How do you make something alien when you don't really know anything that alien?
0: That is true. It's, it's really difficult to actually make something that's totally weird, like frat or something. Say, if you have a creature that has no lips, you can assume that they have no bilabules. That sort of thing. It, it doesn't necessarily make for anything really viscerally alien to most people, necessarily, or to to everyone, but it can be an, a point of interest that something in the physiology has affected this particular alien species and how they speak. But uh, I agree with you, Tomas, that it that usually doesn't end up being as alien as you think it's going to be. That's Except. true.
2: <laughs> I mean, like
1: i oh, go ahead. What I do like about uh, Ferran, uh, when I was checking the grammar earlier, is that, and uh, this resonated for me with uh, the Conworlding, uh, that uh, the author, which uh, I don't know, I don't remember what was his name in, in the board, but whatever, he does have an emphasis in his uh, creating these uh, foxy people. In uh, putting a real amount of uh, depth behind their emotions. Like they're really emotional people. They will, for instance, greet you very effusively, like, oh, how you been? I love you. Like, well, so they appear to be re- this really uh, culturally emotional, culturally effusive people. And for instance, that's manifest in the moods, of, of which there are a lot. And that kind of thing really rings a bell for me more than rubber rubbery things, as, as I was saying. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think the culture of a people is far more reflected, or can be more reflected, in a language than in the physiology of them.
2: I agree completely. I think that's one of the things that I liked about this language was that there is a solid world that goes behind it, and it's not just like copy paste of somewhere else. I mean, you can't be like, oh, this is kind of like Japan because of this, is It's not kind of like anything I know. And it's in-depth, and it's reflected in the language, so they're both connected in a way that I like.
0: Yeah, the world-building is really good. Like I should mention, Feyran is an external name for the language. And It's actually internally like La Maiste, And his whole grammar is actually written in character from somebody who came and visited the the fair I think is what they're called I'm definitely mispronouncing it but <laughs> so he has not only these people figured out but he has another culture figured out enough that he can say he can take a character from another culture and have him observe this culture and look at that's cool you know
2: yeah I mean, even, like, the simple translations he gives, there's a good amount of, like, culture behind them. Because, I mean, you get to the point, like, I see people translating sentences, and they might not be word for word, but when you get a real language, you get to the point where you're like, you can't actually say this. This concept just isn't there. You have to say something else.
1: Right, pragmatics, which is the yeah. most underdeveloped part of any language, because, hey, It's the hardest.
2: It's incredibly difficult. And I think...
0: probably one of the last things you learn if you're learning linguistics. If ever. If ever. I
2: don't think I ever went to class and be like, today we're going to talk about pragmatics." That doesn't happen. At some point, I think sometimes the advice I like to give is like, don't translate everything. At some point you have to say, no, you can't say this. I mean, it sounds kind of like a cop-out, like, oh, I'm not going to worry about it because you can't say it. But at some point, you have to realize, your language can't
0: do everything. Yeah. Um, Not to say that there's anything that's fundamentally untranslatable, but there's just... Because any language can express everything, but because of the structure of a particular language, because of the semantic fields that its words embody, it may be very awkward to translate some things directly, and it may need a little more work to it
2: yeah i mean like culturally i mean even lexically you get things that just don't translate but culturally is where you tend to get those things like it just doesn't make sense like why would you say that
1: and that, that's something that happens with pragmatics and i think it, it happens as well in the the real world of you know the the discipline the, the, the academic discipline of linguistics if you if something doesn't quite fit if something doesn't feel right in language, but it uh, conforms with syntax, and it conforms with the grammar that you've described, and it has a correct lexicon, well, the problem is probably pragmatic, so don't worry about it too much.
2: <laughs> that's always, like, the last thing you learn when you're like learning a second language as well, because you just want to say what you say and not think of yeah, something that's,
0: else. that's actually the part that you can only get through practice. I think the new, the uh, print version of the LCK has a Section on pragmatics. I haven't had a chance to look at it,
2: though. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't even
1: it's, looked at it at all. It's really interesting. <laughs> the thing is, Rosenfelder, the the author of the LCK—that's uh, uh, the Language Creation Kit uh, for uh, everyone—the guy has a real fascination with pragmatics, you know. And he's the first one who said, like, you know, it's not enough to make a grammar and a lexicon and uh, just throw all these things together. You have to make it work in a way that makes cultural sense.
2: That's true. I mean, I've gotten to the point with my language where it's like, I want to do this, but I don't have, like, the culture built up enough. So, like, I'll stop doing, like, let's say, comparatives or something, and then I'll work on the culture for a bit. And then when I go back, I'll be like, yes, I know what kind of context I want to put this in. But I can't just do it without the context, because then I'll probably just, like, relax English, and it'll be like... ER, he's bigger than the other guy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Actually, that makes sense with what you were saying before with every little bit helps. I think maybe Tomas was actually saying that. But, yeah. you know, with a conlang, there's so many different facets of what you can work on with it that mm-hmm. if you get bored with one element of the the language, you can move on to something else.
1: That's true. There's always Absolutely. And that's why you have Kilos, literally kilos of paper with uh, unconnected notes. Completely unconnected.
0: Or for those of us who uh, do it on the computer, we have, you know, gigabytes of stuff. Maybe not gigabytes, but I don't a think lot of stuff. Gigabytes of text. That's like a few <laughs> lifetimes of work. But I that would it. be, yeah. Unless you're doing a lot of audio files, that might. That might take oh, I don't even this
2: try is. speaking my languages. That's
0: pathetic. Well, my very first language, uh, for one thing, there's things that humans can't pronounce properly. But for another thing, it's just freaking hard to pronounce. So I don't try it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I had that problem with one of the languages I made when I was younger. And then I decided, you know what? I'm going to focus my efforts on one language and I'm going to make it as pronounceable as I can. Because I want to be able to pronounce it. I want to be able to speak in it. And I think it has like uh, 16 phonemes and a really, really simple out of phonetics. It's boring. (laughs) It's really boring phonetically. Because, I don't know, phonetics really doesn't uh, interest me. I'm not really entertained by it. So it's like, okay, I have these letters, I have these consonants, and uh, I just want to get into (laughs) the grammar.
0: I think a lot of uh, beginning conlangers really like messing around with the phonology because that's the most accessible thing that's the thing that everybody else will notice and then you get a little bit more into grammar later on
2: yeah I mean that's the other thing going back to the original thing about why you conlang and stuff the other thing is to appreciate a conlang takes much longer than if you look at a painting I mean you can look at a painting for five seconds and say yes I like it no I don't to understand a conlang enough to, like, put a decent judgment on it. it would take hours. At the very least, if it's a decent one and not just, like, a list of phonemes.
0: Yeah, like, we're, we we, we were talking about a, a conlang that we were featuring here, and it's kind of like we're talking around stuff because I, I'm sure none of us really had time to really read the whole grammar at once.
2: No, I'm so lazy.
0: So we were just kind of skimming over it, and uh, we got interesting stuff out of it, but I don't think we fully appreciate what, you know, Farron does, is, and all the work that the guide put into it, all that kind of stuff. But it's good to call attention to it.
2: Well, yeah, and I mean, if you like one thing, then you're more likely to continue reading and going into other things, you know? Yeah. Because, like, I liked one thing in Swedish, and now I'm happily learning Swedish. <laughs> and then I stole it from my other con So, it was all good.
0: What did you steal from Swedish?
2: The indefinite and definite thing. So the indefinite is an article in front, but the definite attaches as a suffix at the end.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I it's usually quite don't nice. use articles.
2: <laughs> well, and then I changed it up. So I added like
0: case on <laughs> top of it. But. Yeah.
1: That's the most uh, common response I see to uh you know, someone featuring one of the aspects of their language, like on the boards or talking with people, you know, my language does something in this or that way, and all you can really say is like, oh, cool, because yeah. because I, I don't know the context, I don't know what's happening, I don't know how that interacts with the rest of the thing, and uh, I don't know how it works, really, so, oh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, oh, cool. cool
2: you want to know how it works? It's bastardy. It's a bastard and it's a pain, because you also have to do case. <laughs>
1: So oh, I hate case.
2: I hated case when I was learning German, but now that I don't have to deal with German, I quite like it.
0: <laughs> See, I like cases, but that may be because I've never learned a language that required case.
1: So, Actually, your language requires case in uh, accusative pronouns, but hey, it's case.
0: Yeah, English does have case only on pronouns.
2: Only in, like, the most vestigial way
0: possible. Yeah, in a very... <laughs> um, oh, it's just, uh, it's Yeah, it is vestigial, just like our uh, very weak and often forgotten subjunctive, which is probably on the way out. It's just right on the vestigial. way out. I didn't those even know English had a subjunctive had. until
2: I started learning German.
0: Yeah. Do people use
2: were, it? No.
0: Germanic the the English subjunctive... No. In Old English, that have been just sort of atrophied. I didn't
2: even know English subjunctive
0: existed. When you say, when people say, if you were. But
2: people never say that. Oh, right, right.
1: Yeah. Yes. That's the the thing. The subjunctive is like another use of the morphological infinitive.
2: Yeah. Cool. I mean, English verbs are not very interesting. (laughs)
1: No,
0: no, no. I mean, we uh, We have a very, very
1: very of subjunctive, and it's funny because it's also on its way out. Really?
2: What? (laughs) I always get rolled on for, rolled on? That's not right. I always get, uh, you know, chastised for not using it, but I'm like, whatever. It's not needed.
1: thing is, the subjunctive in Spanish is pragmatically sort of a prestige thing, like, in formal situations, not using it makes you sound, I don't know, kind of like a hillbilly.
2: What heaven.
1: But, <laughs> but in the real language, you know, like like as in me talking with my girlfriend, she doesn't have a subjective. Yeah. She uses the conditional instead, and a lot of people are doing that. That's, so that's really I interesting. I think there must be something in, in Western culture, maybe, that kind of erodes. Uh,
0: <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that. But uh,
2: maybe everyone just got lazy and said, "Why do we need this? We it's, don't."
0: It's it's, <laughs> subjunctive is a very ill-defined mood in the first place. It's kind of a catch-all thing, but uh, no, it's see. not. <laughs> <laughs> it's, okay. it's,
1: well, for me, it's really it's really simple. I mean, you use the subjunctive in uh, relative clauses, which are not necessarily real when you are speaking about a possibility and not something that is or was or will be.
0: Okay. Yeah,
2: that sounds so simple. Okay. But it is.
1: Okay. It completely is.
0: So it is like that. But I just want to say that um, I don't know if we can draw any conclusions from the fact that both English and Spanish are losing. English has practically lost it because there's only one verb that ever shows it and most people ignore it. And I wonder if that's a general thing in Spanish, or it's just something that's happening in Chile.
1: No. I think it's a general uh, thing. Yeah, yeah. I've heard from people from El Salvador, from uh, Catalonia, from Spain, and uh, Argentina, and they all tell me the same thing. Subjunctive is slowly uh, falling out of use, especially in lower income cities. I I agree. You can't draw conclusions from that, but I think it's worth thinking
0: about. Yeah. Maybe sometime we should use subjunctive mood as our as our feature <laughs> to, to talk more about it. But anyway, I think we've done a pretty good episode, and I think we can we can roll this thing out. Sure. Sure. That's that's rapid. Yeah. Let I'll start, ladies first. Bianca, where can do you have anything on the internet, even your conlang site or anything that you would like to promote? Um,
2: well, I don't have a website, but if you ever see my profile, which is also code, usually at the link at the bottom, I'll have a link to my language. And you should read it, because it's awesome.
0: And that's your profile on... On the CB or the ZB. Okay. And Torco, do you have anything, or even any recommendations you'd like to give to people? Uh, About
1: my own stuff, I don't think I have anything... uh... Decently presented. I mean, uh, I have a lot of paper and I am too lazy to type it. Oh, that's the other thing. Uh, Sorry to talk over you.
2: Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I'm working on a new revision, so it'll be awesome.
1: And I'll promote it. A new what, sir?
2: I'm doing a new revision of my grammar. Oh, it will be.
1: Yes. Get used to it. You're going to be revising your stuff. 50
2: pages. Yes.
0: I once saw a forum post that said that your grammar was not a real grammar unless it was 100 pages.
2: Yeah, well, they can go screw themselves.
0: Well, <laughs> I've never read anything in life 100 pages. pages. <laughs> <laughs> this Maybe this novel that I'm writing will get there. But Anyway, Torco, were you about to recommend something or what? Uh, no.
1: Actually, I wasn't. I was uh, uh, explaining why I'm not going to...
0: <laughs> You're not going to pimp. You can pimp somebody else's stuff if you got nothing. So,
1: Nope. No, okay. Nothing comes to mind right now.
0: All right. Well, I don't have anything specifically conlang-related re- on the Internet, so I, all I can do is direct people to my own personal site, which is GACorley.com. This audience might be interested in... I I try every week to write an essay in Spanish and an essay in Chinese, I, yeah, I failed this week, but I'll try next week. And I have a Twitter account, GA Corley.
2: Cool. I should practice my Spanish. I've gotten really bad.
1: Are you in the mood right now? No.
0: You didn't finish your drink?
2: <laughs> no, I did, which is sad. But unfortunately, it's a very light drink.
0: And that's a wrap for us. Thank you for listening to Con Langery. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or through our own RSS feed. Our blog and show notes are at org. You can also like us on Facebook, just search for Conlangery Podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at conlangery. C-O-N-L-A-N-G-E-R-Y. If you would like to suggest a topic or Conlang feature, yell at us for being stupid or express your love for the podcast, you can contact conlangery at gmail.com. And yes, it is perfectly okay to pimp your own conlang for a conlang of the week. Our theme music was composed by Xander Vadeus. Thank you and good night.